temper tantrums to crying cancel culture are everywhere. In the news, on social media, and now even in our government. But what's really going on? A new podcast demystifies the panic and dispels the many myths about cancel culture. It's called Cancel Me Daddy. It's hosted by Caitlin Burns, the very first openly transgender reporter on Capitol Hill, and our very own Oliver Ash Klein, who's actually my producer here on Brave Not Perfect and one of the founding members of the Trans Journalists Association. Caitlin and Oliver Ash shed light on what they call the cancel culture grift economy, delving into the latest scandals, laughing at the most outrageous takes, and taking a closer look at whose voices are actually being silenced in these conversations. It's fascinating, funny, and often surprising show that I think you're really gonna enjoy. Subscribe to Cancel Me Daddy right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you might get canceled. For too long, history lessons have glossed over the truly essential contributions women have made to history. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. And if you love Brave Not Perfect, I have a feeling you'll love this show too. Encyclopedia Womanica from Wonder Media Network aims to change the narrative by introducing the pioneers, scientists, chefs, and more from the past to today who have shaped our society. Every weekday, host Jenny Kaplan dives into the trials, tragedies, and triumphs of this diverse group of groundbreaking women. And each episode is only five minutes long. The bite-sized episodes pack painstakingly researched content into fun, entertaining, and addictive daily adventures. You may or may not already know these women, but you definitely should. Subscribe to Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Reshma. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, the show where we break from the cult of perfection to live bolder, braver, and happier lives. And for today's show, we're talking about loving ourselves. And for a lot of women, this is really hard. We're told to be critical of our bodies, to make ourselves smaller, to hide so many parts of ourselves away, or to be ashamed of them. But that's our inner perfectionist speaking, telling us we have to conform to unrealistic and arbitrary standards to be happy and loved. But the truth is, those things that the world tells us to hate about ourselves are often the things that make us beautiful. And it's brave to embrace those parts of ourselves and love who we are. Joining me to talk about self-love is Kia Brown. She's the writer and disability activist who created the hashtag Disabled and Cute. She's also the author of The Pretty One on life, pop culture, disability, and other reasons to fall in love with me. And if you're having a hard time with loving yourself, I want you to take a page out of her book. Kia started her self-love journey by just looking in the mirror every day and saying four things she liked about herself. That positive self-talk changed the way she saw herself, and it's something that you can start doing right now. It was such a delight to talk to Kia for the show, and I'm excited to share that conversation with you now. I'm like beyond excited to talk to you. So... As you know, self-care sometimes is like speaking up and taking space for yourself. 
And I know that one of the ways that you've been really doing this is through your uh, disabled and cute hashtag. And I want to talk about like, how did that come about? Like, walk me through like where you were, what you were thinking, how you were inspired to start that hashtag. Um, well, the hashtag became a thing because I was in a really good headspace and I was feeling really comfortable um, in my body for the first time. And I was feeling really good about the, you know, professional work that I was doing. And I thought, you know, this was going to be a thing that passed and I was just going to go back to feeling bad the next day. But what changed was really me putting in the effort to say things that I like about myself every single day. And then by the time February came, I was like, oh, I still feel this way. Let's celebrate it. So Disabled and Cute really began as a way for me to celebrate finally feeling good as a whole in my body and like with myself professionally and personally. And so it was a, a definitely a celebration of sorts. So tell me about like that journey for you. I mean, oof, how much time do we have? I got a lot of time. <laughs> I mean, the journey for me to sort of self-acceptance and for me to finally feel anything other than anger and frustration and sadness was a very long journey. I mean, I'm only 28, but I did spend most of my life so far really uncomfortable and really angry at the world and angry at all the wrong people for, you know, me being disabled and for me being different than everybody else. I was so convinced that difference somehow meant bad. And it really wasn't until... 2016 that I realized that differences are you know not only important but they're beautiful and I know that that sounds super cheesy but I find that sometimes we're so caught up in these sort of Eurocentric beauty standards and we're so caught up in these ideas that we have to be a certain way to be valuable but for me in order for me to find my value I had to start thinking and actually come to the realization that my being different was what also made me beautiful. Mm, it's powerful. What happened in 2016? I mean, everything was going really good for me in 2016. A rough year for everybody else in the world at large, <laughs> I know. But it was really good for me professionally. I mean, I started publishing in places that I had never thought possible that I would see my name or my face. It was, you know, um, Teen Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and all these places that I never thought possible for someone like me. And I was writing about disability, not through the lens of like, I'm disabled and I hate it and you should feel bad for me, but through the lens of like, let's open our eyes about what it means to be disabled and what it means to live a life that's, you know, filled with disability and what it means to be a person who has to adapt to a world that isn't, you know, created for them, right? That it isn't designed with us in mind. And I think in changing my mindset and how I wrote about disability, it also helped me change my mindset and how I saw myself. It was sort of a natural progression. They were happening at the same time, you know? These realizations about who I am as a person were happening alongside my desire to change the way I was writing about disability. Mm. It also felt like in 2016, there, there was a shift, right? There was like a co you know, consciousness about ableism. I feel like there was like a shift in the conversation. Um, and you talk a lot about representation in, po in popular culture, which there isn't a lot of. There's a lot to be yet desired. Um, but your criticism is almost loving, which I find yes. interesting. And why is that 
approach work for you? I mean, for me, I think we critique the things we love the most because we know they can be better. Mm. I've always believed that when you love something, you critique it because you know the potential that it has. And I'm a person who has loved pop culture all of my life. And so I'm not going to come at uh, pop culture with this sort of like animosity and anger only because I'm still going to consume it. But I would also like to consume pop culture that has a proper representation of people like me, you know, because I know the potential that we have in terms of, you know, our, our larger cultural, like our landscape. But I also think that you can talk about people in marginalized groups but not through the lens of trauma. You can also talk about it through joy and laughter and anger. And I think what the problem is that we don't have a full range of emotion for a lot of marginalized groups within our popular culture. And for me, my desire to change that is both selfish, but also because I know people are, you know, fully realized human beings and I want to see them represented on TV because I'm tired of seeing caricatures of people that I know in my everyday life. Yeah, and I love, Kim, one of the things you talk about is like that disabled people, they love fashion too and celebrity gossip, right? right? And you, you love a good designer dress and you'd love to rock yes. one like on, uh, on the runway. So like what's bringing you joy right now in pop culture? Oh my gosh, there is so much, <laughs> which I think is is surprising considering. But I am a person who loves to watch like the award show red carpets just for the dresses and see what everybody has on. And I like um, what's really exciting to me right now is actually TV, because I think that TV is making leaps and bounds, not necessarily for disabled people, but I think they're making leaps and bounds in terms of like storytelling and and the ways in which they're approaching characters of color. I really enjoy that, and that's exciting to me. Like, I know that we're on the last season of The Good Place, but uh, The Good Place is so good. I wish that, like, we could keep it forever. But I also think that Superstore is doing fantastic work um, with their storytelling, and that keeps me excited. And I just saw um, 21 Bridges, which stars Chadwick Bosman. It's so good as well. I'm just really excited for the ways in which we're telling stories in this current mm. cultural moment. That's what keeps me excited about pop culture is the idea that we're finally getting to tell fully realized stories about people who aren't just, you know, see straight white people. It's like yep. th there's an expansion that is definitely long overdue. So as part of that, like a lot of people who are represented, that are, you know, cis, straight, white, right, don't understand why representation is so important. Um, and you've written a lot about how it feels to not truly see yourself. Mm -hmm. I so relate to that. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about what that means for you? I mean, I think that a lot of people who are already represented don't understand what it's like to feel like you're not valuable simply because you're not being seen on this thing that you're consuming and that you love. And so to love something that doesn't necessarily love you back is an experience that I think those same people don't understand. And it's exhausting. And you feel weird at some point. Like sometimes I feel weird for being so upset or so hurt by not being seen in this thing that I love. But when you care about something so much, you want it to care about you back. 
and you want it to reflect to you the love that you feel for it. And when you don't see yourself, you're getting the exact opposite message. You're getting a message that says, hey, you might love us and you might consume us and you might buy our merch or do this thing, but we're never going to give you the space to say, hey, we see you too. And I think there's a part of everybody that wants to be seen in some way, whether you consider yourself a person who likes to be around people or not. You want somebody somewhere or something to see you so that you can feel valued about the way that you're living your life. And I think for me, pop culture has always been this place where I have found bits and pieces of myself valuable because it was reflected back to me in shows I love, in films I love. But to see the whole picture, I think, would be a dream come true Mm. just so I can be like, hey, you know, I'm on the right track and this person understands me and I'm going to keep going. I think pop culture propels our society forward. And if you're not being seen in that forward motion, then you're going to be like, oh, I'm left behind because I don't matter. Yeah. And I want us to change that sort of you know, mindset where we're only showing certain people because all of us matter. Yeah, it's so powerful. I remember I used to get so excited when I was little and I would see someone who's South Asian on TV and my whole family would get excited. And it's funny now when, you know, I'm watching TV and you see a lot more South Asian characters in a lot of shows, like how far we've come. But like Mm -hmm. thinking back to that little girl who, I don't know, maybe it it meant, I'm trying to think of why it was so powerful for me. And I think it was like, yeah, maybe it meant that I was worthy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a weird thing to think about, I think, but I've always thought that, like, it just means more than we're giving it credit mm-hmm. for, because when you see yourself and you're like, I can live in that world, too, not necessarily inside the TV, but it also expands the ways in which you feel like you can grow as a person. Because you're seeing these people live their lives and you're like, oh, maybe that's possible for me. So in many ways, it gives you a sort of... um it gives you a sort of like map, a roadmap or a, a way to think, oh, I can dream bigger because they're dreaming bigger because they're on this bigger platform than I ever thought possible. And they're doing, you know, X, Y and Z thing. I can do that, too. Or not even the thing. Exactly. I can just dream bigger. Yeah. I, I One of the things you talk about and you're so vulnerable around this is this desi- your desire for romantic love. Mm-hmm. And do you see yourself being vulnerable about that topic as part of your activism? Uh, no, I think I think it's just a part of me being an oversharer. <laughs> <laughs> like I think I, I wish that I thought of it as some sort of like revolutionary thing, but I don't I don't see it that way just because I I knew that I wanted to talk about it and I knew that I wanted to just you know be honest about it but I never thought about I guess I wrote the book knowing that like my friends from college and my family would read it and I was like that's fantastic yes I love them but I never thought about it as like in terms of someone reading it and being like oh you know is that a purposeful vulnerability like no I was just talking like I would to my friends um about it and I, I mean, I'm glad that it's reaching people and that people are s- taking something from it. But for me, writing about romance and, and the desire for love is simply just me telling another part of my story and being honest about it. Because people get really weird when you're like, oh, I want to be loved. They're like, no, 
you should just, you know, romantic love isn't that important. Isn't that important? It's like not a big deal. And like, okay, sure, it's not the world's most important thing, but I think it matters to people, and, and you're allowed to let it matter to you. Just don't let it consume the like how you're living your life, and don't let it impact how you feel about yourself because you do or don't have it. Yeah, it's such a hard thing. I mean, I think we all want to fall in love and find love and feel love, and it is such a such a big part. I think of for a lot of people of like the thing that they're looking for uh, in life. Uh, so my producer told me that you are a, a newly anointed bi icon. So yes. <laughs> congratulations. Thank you. Um, you know, earlier we were just talking about love and the importance of representation. And I was wondering if you see your journey in relationship with your own sexuality represented in media. No. <laughs> Talk to me. <laughs> I know I answered that really quickly, but no, I think... Um, what often happens is we see a very singular narrative even within that, you know, it's still very white, still very, you know, a lot of times people are talking about people coming out when they're younger or, or it's it's very, I find that the narratives are very much um, sort of formulaic in that they happen to young people, they happen to white people, they happen to white men in particular I've never seen a story about I mean maybe the color purple but I guess that doesn't really count um so no I don't think that I have yet but I hope to even if I have to be the one to write it I'll do it I just but I do hope it happens in my lifetime I think because I came out later in life I I find that you don't see that reflected and you don't see what it's like for other people who have come out later in life and what that means to not always know immediately, you know, to not always know when you're age seven or six or eight to figure it out later, to know that there's always something there, but never something that you could put a name to. And I think a lot of times you see these narratives and, and they're cute and, you know, they wrap up nicely. And I like that. I prefer a happy ending always just because I never thought that they were possible for people like me so I'm always going to gravitate toward a happy ending but I do wish that the movies themselves were more diverse in terms of who gets their own you know coming out coming of age journey or or and what that means to be older than say 16 17 18 you know getting ready to graduate high school like you know or or finding only those narratives valuable even in books I find that like I'm seeing those same narratives reflected back to me in books but not like we're not seeing a more diverse representation in any sort of cultural medium and I wish that that was changed because I think that those stories like stories like mine are just as valuable but I was very initially afraid to say anything because like I said this is still so new for me but I find that I might as well be honest about it and, and just say that like I do wish that we had narratives wherein we would see you know people of color women men gender non-conforming people in more representation for queer people absolutely so you you called your book the pretty one because you had a twin sister and you were born disabled and you always felt that you weren't 
the pretty one. Yes, always. I always thought that I was sort of the ugly duckling. Um, I thought that I was never going to be someone who anybody else thought was pretty or beautiful or worthy or cute or what have you. And so I thought that there could only be room for one of us. Um, and that's why I was very, like, terrible to my sister Leah. I was very mean to her, and I didn't know how to articulate my own frustration and sadness with myself, so I took it out on, you know, the only other person that I saw was my direct competition. But when I got older and went away to college, I realized that, like, Leah's pretty great, and I didn't you know, I was like, Leah's, Leah's great. Like, I didn't know this and I didn't want to know it. I didn't even try to get to know her when we were, you know, in high school. I was just like, nope, she's the enemy. But um, it really took me going away to college and, and being away from her to realize that I was being ridiculous. And it isn't about a competition between the two of us. It's not even a competition between me and other people. Um, and then I realized that, like, not only is she the pretty one, because I do think that she still is the pretty one, but I also think that I can be too. There's room for both of us. And I feel like the the collection as a whole really sort of encapsulates that idea of the pretty one and what it means for someone like me to finally come to terms or come to the realization, rather, that I can be that as well. It's powerful. I mean, I think you're teaching all of us how to love yourself because I think a lot of us spend a lot of time not loving ourselves, and mm -hmm. you certainly can't change the world if you don't start within. Right, right. And I hate the idea that, like, you have to immediately love yourself before somebody else can, because I think that if I didn't have, um, you know, my friends and family who loved me first, I would have never gotten here. So I understand that it's like an everyday process for me even now. And I don't want somebody to think, oh, so I just have to immediately start. Like, no, you just take small steps and small steps. And then they, they get bigger and bigger. And one day you realize that you're not a terrible person just because you don't look a certain way or just because you feel a certain thing or you love a certain person. That doesn't make you bad. It just makes you who you are. And that person is valuable even when you don't necessarily think that you can be somebody worth value or, or somebody who has value. You do automatically. I'm sure you have a lot of young girls email you or reach out to you and, t and say thank you uh, and say that by seeing you, they feel like they have a chance to be seen. Any mm -hmm. stories come to mind? Oh, my gosh. I got one last week that made me weep. I mean, okay, I'm not a cute... Me. I'm not a cute crier at all either, so I just <laughs> want to make that clear. Um, she was, I think, like 17, 18, and she had read the book with her mom. And she said, this is the first time that I'm ever seeing a Black disabled woman who isn't just sad at the end of the book, who is mm. hopeful and and funny and kind. And she had missed, I did like a, I call it a tour of sorts for the book, and she had missed the stop in... Houston, I believe. I think it was a conference that I did and she couldn't afford to go. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, if you send me your, if I'll, I'll send you. She said, I already have a couple copies of the book. And I'm like, how can I sign it? I just want to, <laughs> I just want to give you something back. But it was such a nice, lovely email. And I get those and they make me cry every single time because I didn't write it thinking that I would be somebody else's representation. I wrote it thinking that I was just going to tell my story and hopefully things would change and people would like it. But I, I never thought that I could be somebody's first form of representation and that's amazing like it just makes me so emotional but I'm also a really sappy person so it could be that as well (laughs) (laughs) what do you feel like your your bravest act has been um I think my bravest act has been being emotional has been talking about what it means to feel something or feel multiple things at once. I think that my bravest act has really been to be who I am out loud and not apologize for the space that I take up. Do you think that we live in a world that doesn't encourage women to be emotional? Absolutely. Specifically black women, I mean, we're always told to be stoic and strong and never let anybody see you sweat and, you know, hold up all these people. But it's like, who's holding us up? Who is doing that work to make sure that we're good? And I find that for me to be so openly emotional and to be a person who says, you know, I love you constantly to my mom, bless her heart. She's probably like, Kia, you said it to me like 16 times. (laughs) But I just, I'm a person that has always believed that emotion itself is a powerful thing. Even when I tried to tuck my own away and and be, you know, tougher or, or whatever I thought that that meant. Um, I find that emotion itself and being emotional is being brave and being emotional for me is being true to who I am. And so I've decided to live the rest of my life being my most authentic self. And that means to be emotional. Mm. I think part of that, right, is just like um, making people see kind of the humanity in one another. Like I remember when I was younger, I was just talking to my father about Mm -hmm. this. My dad had taken me to the home of a friend of his who was paraplegic. And this incredible man had designed this entire home. Mm -hmm. And I was probably about 11 years old. And the lesson my father wanted to teach me was that just because you're disabled doesn't mean that you're not intelligent. Right. And that so many times people think that. And it's wrong. Yeah, they do. And I was so grateful um, that he taught me that at such a young age. You know, what are some of the other kind of stereotypes do you think that we have to fight against? And that are in some ways ingrained in our culture that we don't even think about them, right? Yeah. Because they're such like second nature. I find myself more upset recently about things that are designed that could really help disabled people and people dunking on them on the internet. Like that sock thing that helps you put your socks on Mm -hmm. or that um, there's like tons of that thing that helps you brush your teeth. People are like, oh, no, you're just lazy. You're just this. You're just that. Mm. But that could help so many people with disabilities. And I think, for me, I get frustrated because people automatically think that disability is either people who use um, mobility aids 
And I think that, hello, it is. But I think there are those of us who don't use them full time. And we don't talk about that. We don't talk about people with invisible disabilities. They're, you know, they're just sort of, everything is like people think that disability means wheelchair user. They don't, they haven't expanded what it means to be disabled. So they'll see somebody with a um, parking placard and they'll be like, oh, that person is faking. You know, we even see it in pop culture. Like, I loved the movie Always Be My Maybe, but I remember there's a scene where it was like everybody lined up. They had like parking placards, and I think Ali Wong's character said something like, Oh, you know, look at all of them. They don't need any of those. And I mean, it does happen, I guess, but I think it just goes to show that there's a very narrow view of what disability is. And I find that that's the most frustrating thing is that people think disability means laziness. And if you can, like, I get a lot of looks at the airport um, when I travel because I travel using the uh, wheelchair requested assistance because I can't walk long distances. And most of the airports I'm going to are huge. But Mm -hmm. I get, like, looks when I get out of the wheelchair to get on the plane because people are like, you know, what is she doing? She's faking. But that's just the lived reality, you know, and that's I'm not going to apologize for that. And I find that people often see disability as only being older people only being impacted by disability but those of us who have had disabilities all of our lives have you know learned to adapt to a world that's not designed for us and we did that without you know having to come into disability it was always ours and I think that that's a problem with representation as well because we always see these narratives where people come into disability so they're always mourning the life that they had before but for those of us who were born this way there's no life to mourn and it's not fair that disability is only seen through the lens of lives that are that are worth mourning or whatever you know so Mm. I mean there's definitely a lot of work to be done um and hopefully It'll happen, you know, and I'll be able to see it myself. But I do think that people have a lot of weirdly problematic preconceived notions about disability, for sure. No, they definitely do. So how can uh, listeners follow you and support your work? And and I want you to tell everybody a little bit more about your book. Yes. Because um, it's awesome. Thank you. So the best way to support me right now is to buy my book, The Pretty One. It's um, The Pretty One on Life, Pop Culture, Disability, and Other Reasons to Fall in Love with Me. And um, it's a book about pop culture and representation. It's about friendship and grief and loss and love. It sort of covers the gamut of every single thing that I've ever loved in my entire life, including music. And I think that there's something in it for everyone. Um, You don't have to be disabled to get something from the book. Um, I really believe that this collection of essays is something that will allow anyone to feel prepared and excited to start their own journey towards self-love. And you can read more of my work at kiabrown.com. That's K-E-A-H-B-R-O-W-N.com. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at Kia, K-E-A-H underscore Maria, M-A-R-I-A. Well, I'm so grateful that so many young girls and young kids like can look up to you as a role model. Uh, my aunt had polio, um, and so she uh, was born disabled. And, you know, I wish that she had somebody like you uh, in her life, you know, growing up to look look up to. So thank you so much, Kia. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I I just wanted to, for the book, I wanted to write the book I wish I had when I was younger, 
you know, definitely like the book that really I could have used and, and maybe not have taken so long for me to finally, you know, fall in love with myself and finally feel, you know, good in my body much earlier than I actually did. But I'm glad that people absolutely have it now and hopefully can take something from it and start their own journeys a little earlier than I did and um, maybe help, you know, the people that they love along the way. It certainly will. So thank you so much. Thank you, Kia. Thank you. That was Kia Brown, author of The Pretty One, on life, pop culture, disability, and other reasons to fall in love with me. Thank you for joining me today. If you want more Brave Not Perfect, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Ashley, the executive producer of the show. Brave Not Perfect is also made possible by my co-producers, Tanya Zaporonik and Charlotte Stone, and it couldn't be done without the support of Deborah Singer. A new show comes out every other Tuesday.